Hey there, and welcome to the Oscars Death Race podcast, where we try to watch all the Oscar-nominated movies or die trying. My name is Paulo, and I'm your host. Hope everyone's doing well out there. If you're based here in the States, hope you had an enjoyable, long Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. And if you felt comfortable, maybe you went and saw some Oscar contenders in theaters. I actually did that myself with less of a film that I know is going to get Oscar nominated and one that I hope will be. I watched Bell, Mama Hosoda's latest anime film, um, hoping that it will make it to Best Animated Feature Film. Um, I'm going to cover it anyway on my Yet Another Anime podcast. But uh, in any case, we are here this week talking this episode on the Oscars Death podcast. Um, also, I celebrated my 30th birthday this past weekend, uh, which means I had my own Tick, Tick, Boom 3090 moment. Uh, speaking of Tick, Tick, Boom, though, last week we talked about four films Netflix had that were in contestant for Best Picture this year, including Tick, Tick, Boom. However, I had thought that when I was planning out these episodes that maybe it could be grouped together with the ne- this next set of films for this episode. Uh, most Oscar nominees tend to be adult prestige dramas with you know Best Picture nominees used at most having one maybe two films that could be considered quote-unquote genre. Um, you know, these films that are, you know, full-on musicals or comedies, which tend to be the Golden Globes things more than the Oscars, aren't that common in the uh, in the best pictures. Not to mention that full-on horror or science fiction or what more superhero films rarely make it to the final best picture nominees, uh, the odd Joker or Black Panther film aside. However, this year, while there aren't any superhero films in contention, we do have a range of genre films from science fiction to noir to musicals and even Shakespearean horror. Um, This week, we'll be talking about the films of Dune, West Side Story, The Tragedy of Macbeth, and Nightmare Alley. Now, joining me this episode is going to be a friend of mine from college, Alex Atienza. Um, It's actually been a couple of years since I'd spoken to Alex, but I'm really glad we got this chance to not only catch up in general, but to really get a chance to pick his brain about these different films. As you'll see and hear, he is very eloquent and very had very well thought out and informed opinions and perspectives of these films. I mean, I'd expect that from somebody who got his MFA for a film production from USC, um, and in addition to working as an editor and script reader for Riot Games, is currently also a programming intern at Le Cinema Club, uh, which apparently which shows one free film every week for free online. Um, I'll link to his box as well as to Le Cinema Club in the show notes. Now, before we get to this episode, a quick reminder that the Academy of Death Racers Film Festival is currently underway. Uh, be sure to check out some of those film selections. I personally am most invested in checking out some of these animated short films. Um, I also think there's going to be a movie quiz taking place this weekend on the 22nd at 11 p.m. UTC, whatever that happens to be for your time zone. Should be a bunch of fun. It's a great bunch of people uh, who are going to be taking part. Um, also, you know, reminder that this does run until January 30th, so make sure you get your tickets and uh, watch all the films available. All right, uh, enough being said, let's hop into these film discussions for these Best Picture contenders. Uh, One last warning, we will be going into spoiler territory somewhat on these films, so you have been warned. All right, I'll catch you on the other side. And now we are here with my guest for this week, uh, my friend from colleagues, Alex Atienza. Um, Alex, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourselves, you know, tell us where you're calling from and you know, what you do like, during the day. Sure. So I'm Alex Atienza, and I am from Gaithersburg, Maryland. 
I'm currently a film editor and a script reader for Riot Games, and I am also a film programming intern for Le Cinema Club, which is an online streaming platform for cinephiles. We show one movie for free each week on our website. And then you also got your MFA recently, uh, like within the past uh, year or so, right? That's correct. I graduated with an MFA in film production from the University of Southern California in 2020, and I had a BA in cognitive science and philosophy from the University of Pennsylvania in 2017, which is where I met. Pablo. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where we met. And, you know, Alex is always, you know, one of the more thoughtful individuals. You both were in like the Filipino Association, uh, sat at the PPA um, at Penn. And yeah, he was always super thoughtful and, you know, always had like really insightful opinions when it came to film. So I was, you know, excited to have a chance to, yes, I guess it's a a real first conversation, I guess, about film, really, I think, uh, especially since we graduated for Sir. Yeah, it has. I I think last time we spoke must have been when I was still in college. So that's it's been quite a while. And yes, I don't think we have had a proper conversation about film before. So I'm really excited to be able to go talk about it with you. Yeah. So, you know, why, why, why don't we start there? So, you know, how long have you been into films? Uh, right. Obviously, you went and got your MFA to it since grad, after graduating undergrad. But, uh, you know, how long have you been into movies in general? It's, I've been into movies for as long as I can remember. And I think it was probably since at least when I was 10. It was, I think that was the first time I became aware of movies other than what was marketed to me. Um, And I developed an idiosyncratic taste that made me realize that the things I liked would not always necessarily be what is popular. I think that forced me to kind of really articulate what it is that I liked about specific movies rather than film just in general. Yeah, well, what, what was that first film that, that made you realize like you had this idiosyncratic appreciation for film? I think it was more like a group of films. So, you know, around, say, 2005, which is when I was 10, I, I had a lot of appreciation for Shyamalan's The Village, um, Spielberg's War of the Worlds, um, and I think Joel Schumacher's 2004 adaptation of The Phantom of the Opera. So these weren't, you know, these were successful movies, but they weren't Star Wars, right? Which is the sort of films that I'd be watching prior to this. There wasn't really a method to it at that time. This is just what I was liked. Um, and like I said, prior to this, I normally would watch what just everyone watched. Um, and I th- but I think the following year, in 2006, I became really into Babel, the Alejandro Iñárritu film. And I think that was my first real exposure to foreign film. Um, and I look back at these, and I think only the Spielberg film really holds up. But I think all of those um, are examples of films that had an impact on me at that time. Um, and of course, I have still have fondness for them because I grew up watching them. Um, but in retrospect, I think I can also acknowledge some of their flaws. Yeah, for sure. And I think sometimes it's the flaws of the films that they are still that are as important to them as much as their strengths, right? Definitely. Um, so, have you ever done? So, before we recorded, you had you said you hadn't heard about the Oscars decades, but you know, obviously, I'm guessing you've gotten getting your MFA and you know, to some degree working in the industry uh, have you know are, are aware of what's always up with the Oscars. So, what are your thoughts on the you know films that 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 do well at the Oscars? And you know, have you ever done anything like Maybe not the entire Oscars death phase, like watch everything uh, that's been nominated for every category, but even just like all the best picture nominees or something similar. It's funny you ask that because I think I've always had a conflicted relationship with the Oscars because a lot of the films that I like each year rarely get nominated. Oh, interesting. (laughs) Um, Unfortunate. And I think to also return to the conversation about how I got interested in film, I think it's around high school that I developed a deeper relationship with film and seeing it as an art. And that encouraged me to. Uh, look at films outside the United States 
at a lot of foreign cinema. And I feel like sometimes those accomplishments aren't recognized as much as they should be. Um, and the Oscars still end up being very American-centric. Of course, I feel like in the last couple of years, I think we've seen a shift a bit. We see films like Parasite winning Best Picture. And I think that that's indicative of a good trend um, to recognize films from other countries or films that might be a little more challenging, like Moonlight. But I think I've never felt the urge to be a completionist with regards to the Oscars because I think I've always found other places to look for films that I think would reliably interest me. Um, but nevertheless, I think that in recent years, they have acknowledged films that I did admire greatly. I think Nomadland was another example of that, where it wasn't nearly trying to be prestigious. I think there was a, I think, a deeper social point being tried to convey by it. And I think that's something I really valued. Yeah, I'm guessing you're more like a, maybe like an independent spirit film award kind of person as opposed to the Oscars. Yes, for sure. All right. Oh, yeah. We definitely have. I definitely know some people who also do the Oscars. Like, there's some people who try to watch, you know, not only all the Oscars, but also like all the BAFTAs, all the Critics' Choices, and yes, all the Independent Spirits as well. So, wow. um, yeah, the, the, those people. Hats off to you. I, I don't know how I, I, I'm barely able to finish the Death Face, uh, the Oscars, some years. Um, so, how many movies a year do you generally watch, and what type type of films do you you tend towards? Let, let's say the films that maybe from 2021 that have had your eye. So, according to Letterboxd. Um, which I use very often. I watched 208 movies last year. Um, and normally, actually, I'd watch only half that amount. But last summer, I had the opportunity to attend the Cannes Film Festival. And I was so inspired that for the rest of the year, I doubled my intake, basically. And one of my favorite films from uh, this year is actually from the festival. It was called The Souvenir Part Two, um, which is the second part of this diptych by the British filmmaker Joanna Hogg. Uh, the first one, which I think was released in 2019, I enjoyed very much. And I think that raised my hopes a lot for this film, um, which is about a young woman um, coming of age in 80s um, London and her relationship with an older man who happens to have a drug addiction. And the film explores how she tries to negotiate that relationship as she goes through film school. And now maybe I'm a little biased because I myself went through film school very recently and I could identify some of the struggles that she herself went through um, in the souvenir part too. But nevertheless, I do, I think compared to a lot of the other films I saw this year, that was the one that impressed me the most. Awesome. Uh, and what about, you know, from, let's say from the Oscars last year, um, who, who made it in the final category, uh, who made it to the Oscars last year? Were there any that stood out to you particularly? Obviously you mentioned Nomadland, but any others? Yes, yeah, so actually, I think even more so than No Man Land, a film that I liked from the Oscars last year was Sound of Metal. Oh, yes. I think, I think that was probably among my top five from last year. There's an incredible sense of urgency that is conveyed by putting us in the protagonist's perspective through the sound design. And I think it, it was used sound in a way that I haven't seen in many other films uh, recently. All right. And then, you know, last question then, what's your favorite film? Loaded, slightly loaded question, but what's your favorite film of all time, if you had to pick one? Always the dreaded question, I think, when it comes to conversations among film people. And I always go back and forth, like I rotate among a top five on my on my letterbox. But I think a film that's on my mi mind right now is Playtime by Jacques Tati. 
um, which I think exemplifies visual comedy at its best. All right, then. Well, you know, this is definitely, uh, you know, and speaking of comedies, right? So, you know, this episode of the Oscars Death Face podcast, you know, as you know, the nominations for the Oscars are not quite yet out. Um, so we're going to be going through the, uh, you know, most likely, according to what Gold Derby says, films that will be may likely make it to uh, the Oscars. We're going through four films and, you know, I, I know one one thing that one problem one oversight the Oscars tends to have is that they don't they don't always tend to award so called genre films right um, I don't know do you feel the same way Alex Yeah I do feel like there is definitely a bias against genre films in the Oscars Yeah so genre you know being horror films or science fiction and you know to some degree right I'll, I'll also group in theatrical productions in there as well don't always seem to do as well as opposed to you know the the, the drama films out there so um, but this year there are actually a, a decent number of films kind of in contention within that top 12 or so so we'll be going uh, um, in order you know we'll be going with Dune part 1 uh, West Side Story Tragedy of Macbeth and Nightmare Alley um, I've seen three of those four i haven't seen nightmare alley so alex you, you you're going to need to help us out with that one um but yeah uh fi one final warning you know as i mentioned in the introduction to this to this uh, episode we will be going somewhat into spoiler territory so if you haven't seen these films yet uh, this is your chance to go and see them before uh, you get spoiled for them the first film up is, you know, arguably I went through my top 10 films I watched last year, you know, on my Instagram. And, you know, I think I shared it on, you know, the Discord server. But my top 10 films included, um, you know, I, I, I tend to separate it out between top 10 films, best films in terms of the best production and then top 10 films of my favorite. And only two films made it onto both lists for me last year. One of them was Minari, um, which was my favorite film from last year's Oscars. Um, but then uh, my favorite one uh, and also, um, but uh, the other one that made it was this one, Dune Part 1. Um, it's an adaptation of the supposedly unadaptable 1965 Frank Herbert science fiction novel of the same name, or at least the first half of the novel with Part 2 set to come out in October 2023. It's about interplanetary politics on the desert planet Arrakis, the only source of the all-important spice melange, which apparently must flow. Uh, it's directed by Denis Villeneuve. Uh, it features an impressive cast, including Timothy Salome, Rebecca Ferguson, Oscar Isaac, Joth Brolin and Jason Momoa as House Atreides and their allies, uh, Stellan Skarsgård and Dave Bautista from House Harkonnen, and Zendaya, Sarah Duncan Brewston, and Charlotte Rampling as members of, uh, as other figures in this uh, desert saga. Uh, Dune premiered at the 78th International Venice International Film Festival before an international rollout starting September 15th, and a U.S. release in theaters and on HBO Max on October 21st, 2021. Currently, it sits at a 4.0 on, on Letterboxd with 632 thousand viewers and on Rotten Tomato it has an 83% from critics and a 90% on from audience. Um, according to Gold Derby, it is up for a number of awards. In fact, I, I suspect, I think based off this, it's between this or Power of Dog for most likely to win most Oscars. Um, it's currently number four for Best Picture, number two for Best Director, Danny Villeneuve, number five for Best Adapted Screenplay, first for Best Cinematography, second for Costume, first for Editing, second for Makeup and Hair, first for Production Design, first for Score, first for Sound, and first for Best Visual Effects. <sighs> okay, Alex, uh, when did you see Dune Part 1? I saw it um, like right after Thanksgiving, so on November 21. Um, but by that point, they had actually withdrawn it from the IMAX screenings, so I didn't get to see it in its intended format, <laughs> unfortunately. I did see it in the theaters, and I was very grateful too, but I really wish I could see it in IMAX. And I think th that format really would have done justice to some of this really great um, cinematography. 
Yeah, I I was lucky enough to actually see it in in IMAX. So here in in New York City, there's the Lincoln Center IMAX, which I think is one of like the true IMAX screens here on the East Coast, at least. Um, and yeah, I saw it. I think I think actually went opening weekend. I was just that excited for it. And yeah, uh, definitely, I I can definitely see like where the cinematography it's currently number one. Definitely agree there. Um, what were your overall thoughts of the film? Like, have you seen like first off, have you read Frank Herbert's uh, Dune novel and or seen the uh, the um, David Lynch version before. So I had um, never read the book and I have not seen the previous movies, but I, I did have high expectations because I am a longtime Villeneuve fan and I have been since Sunday. Given those high expectations, I do feel like the film was so close to being great. Uh, and But I still uh, can't help but feel that it is slightly disappointing when it fails to live up to those expectations. So to start with its merits, I feel like Villeneuve has managed to take a rather dense novel and pare it down to its essential elements. So it's the fact that House Atreides has been led into a trap by being given Arrakis and that Paul is reluctant to be the Messiah. Um, and that's made very clear um, without the story getting bogged down in uh, details of the world building, which I do feel like a lot of sci-fi tends to do. Uh, the production design, the cinematography, and the score are all immersive and stunning, and I feel like is probably the best example of the use of those elements to convey the world in a sci-fi that I've seen recently. I do feel like the shortcomings mainly center around the fact that, to me, it felt rather one note. Uh, the arrival on Trades is supposed to be a very triumphant moment, but most of the film plays with a sort of uniform solemnity that I think sometimes makes it hard to discern the moment-to-moment -moment shifts in the stakes. Consider, for example, the difference in tone between the Shire scenes in The Lord of the Rings and the darkness that comes later on in the film and in the series. Uh, and I think that's a good example of the kind of tonal range that I would have liked to see in Dune. And I do feel like some of that um, one-note quality is also reflected in the visual style. It, it uses a very shallow depth of field sometimes, um, which I think compromises the co visual compositions. And it's a lot of the staging is, is, doesn't rely on the foreground and background as much. It's all mid-ground. Other times, I do feel like the writing itself undermines its own drama. So one example of this would be the storming of the fortress. Um, and we never see Paul and Jessica being captured by the Harkonnens. Uh, this is a decisive moment in the story, and yet for some reason it was left out. And so that was something that was very surprising to me. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm thinking about it now. Yeah, definitely I, I can get that one note. Feel. I, I guess there was some part, I think there was like an attempt to maybe like parallel certain things. Like I remember, um, you know, there was that scene on the home planet. I forget what, what the home planet is called, but where like Paul puts his hand in the water and lets the water drip through. And then at some point later, it's kind of paralleled with him kind of doing the same motion, but with the sand and the spice um, and it, as it goes through his fingers. And yeah, it's kind of like a very similar note as opposed to, like you said, the contrast between uh, the beginning and end of, of the Lord of the Ring uh, films, for sure. I definitely get that. Um, you know, it definitely seems so like, you know, I, I'm also a big Villeneuve fan. I think, you know, I was very heartbroken when uh, Blade Runner 2049 ended up, you know, kind of, you know, it got some recognition at, in its Oscars, but no, nowhere near the recognition here, which, you know, arguably, I would say on a technical level, I enjoyed 2049, you know, even more on a technical level here, even though, um, you know, I, 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 there definitely were some flaws in that film. Um, uh, and, but I think, you know, 
he's definitely a technical master. So why don't you speak about like Villeneuve? Obviously, he's up for second, third director and kind of, you know, all of these technical accomplishments. What do you think about Villeneuve leads to this whole, or and, and him and his team, right? It's not just him, but him and his team leads to this, you know, such an immersive technical and why it's so well regarded in all of these different categories, you think? It's interesting because I think the team that Villeneuve is working with on Dune is pretty different from some of pretty different from the team that he has worked with in some of his previous films. Um, my favorite uh, Villeneuve films were actually done in collaboration with Roger Deakins and Johan Johansson. Um, and well, you know, now that Johan Johansson has passed away, he has to collaborate with some other people whose styles I feel like are different from what had appealed to me in his earlier movies. I think Johan was very minimal. Um, in a way that was almost ominous. Whereas I think the minimalism that I see with Zimmer's collaborations with Villeneuve seem more of the same um, with regards to this very wallpapery musical quality where I, I think it gets a little repetitive at some points compared to what he had done with Johansson. Deakins, on the other hand, I think they've both been collaborating for a long time except for Arrival, if I'm correct, and then also for in for in for Dune, which I think were both shot by Greg Fraser, um, and I do think that Deakins is stronger a cinematographer than Greg Fraser. I mean, it's Deakins. <laughs> yeah, it's no, there's no disputing that. So it it would be surprising to me for Dune to get more acclaim for its technical aspects than. Villeneuve's previous films would be. You think it maybe it's because of the scale, right? The combination of a, you know, kind of the mythology of Dune being like a somewhat, like I, I have with the film, I have with the novel, I haven't seen the David Lynch version. And, you know, I mean, that that may be partly of why I enjoyed it so much. I could definitely see, they, like you said, there were a lot of world building elements that were kind of stripped away, right? Like there's this whole mythology in the novels about how the reason you know, things are the way they are is that there was like a, an uprising when humanity created a bunch of, you know, created computers that essentially uh, led to an AI war, basically. And then, you know, now humans have to rely on lower, like somewhat lower tech and non-computer based technology, um, which is where the spice comes in, which is supposed to be like a chemical that's supposed to help with space navigates and all that. And they don't bog themselves too down with the details, but, you know, there's still enough there to give like this, 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 you know, this quality of um, otherworldliness, um, and like like there is a complete story there, right? Like it feels, it feels very much like you know Game of Thrones to some degree, without you know all the details of the politics. But you know, you can sense that there's just this, this entire world behind it, um, even if it's not explicitly laid out for you. So, I like that's part of the screenplay, I think. Um, but yeah, why? Why? So you know, is it because it's like a, a this property that's a little bit more well known and not quite as niche as his other, you know, like say his other adaptation of twenty forty nine, for example, which like he going back to? I think to answer the question as to why it's getting so much attention, I think part of it has to do with its ambition. I think it's rare to see very ambitious uh, science fiction nowadays, even though it is ambitious. Um, it's not held back by it, and it's still also a very focused film. Um, I remember uh, in an interview, Villeneuve talks about how he didn't want to go too much into the world building. He only hints at it, um, but he really wanted to keep it very much at the level of the characters. Uh, and th that's why we never see, for instance, um, the guild navigators, or we never really go uh, in-depth into um, some of the political aspects of the, the weaponry, for example. I mean, all those aspects, which you actually mentioned earlier, but regarding to uh, 
the backstory of this world. I didn't actually learn about it until I read a synopsis of the novel off Wikipedia after I saw the film. <laughs> but what's remarkable is that the film also works pretty well on its own. And I think another reason that it's getting so much attention is due to the fact that it is sort of like this cursed property where previous adaptations um, kind of fail. Um, especially, you know, there's that you know, very famous case of um, Yurovsky trying to adapt it and not being able to kind of secure the appropriate amount of financing to complete his vision. And then, you know, Lynch's version was, was panned critically and he distanced himself from it. Then you have the you know miniseries in the two thousands, which was, from what I understand, okay, but people kind of overlooked for it, overlooked it. So I think there's a lot of pressure to make sure that this version, um, this time around, gets it right. Um, and I think that's why there is a lot of attention, a lot, also a lot of scrutiny in some respect, um, but also a lot of ad admiration for the fact that it was able to make the story work where others have not right make make like a niche science fiction property you know frankly it is like you know it's not in the it didn't break into the top 10 of the year but it definitely you know that's partly held back by being a day and date release on hbo max to some degree and overseas right it broke a lot of records as well um box office wise right so you know it's that and there's still again he has ambitions to do dune part two and i think dune messiah you know kind of like his trilogy basically of dune films at some point which like you said speaks a lot to the ambition so you know there's it, it definitely feels like if this doesn't get you know all the awards i feel like if he comes up with the sequels those will probably continue to get you know some some recognition as well in the future right and to be honest i'm surprised dune was as big a box office success as it was especially when you consider it in light of how blade runner 2049 was not uh, successful at the box office so sometimes it seems like it's a toss-up you know both were adaptation or I guess you could call them adaptations of the previous films, but they're not remakes, right? We'll, we'll talk about box office and, and genre films in a little bit, but any other thoughts on Dunes before we move on to the next one? I think that's it for me. All right, cool. So, you know, this next one, arguably, you know, supposedly, you know, surprisingly to me, has a higher rating uh, at, on for Best Picture. Um, and, you know, there, there's, I think there's an argument. I can see an argument why, but also on all the technical levels, it seems to be ranked a little bit lower. So we'll, we'll talk about that kind of like comparison. Um, but, you know, this one is, uh, you know, kind of like another so-called remake to some degree. If Dune, you know, had a predecessor in the uh, David Lynch version, this one ha uh, is had a predecessor in 1961. It is, of course, talking about about West Side Story, the Steven Spielberg version. It's a remake of the 1961 film adaptation of the 1950s New York-based Romeo and Juliet story, a musical from Broadway by Jerome Robbins with music by Leonard Bernstein and lyrics by the late Stephen Sondheim, uh, which won 10, which at the time, the, the 1961 film won 10 of the 11 Oscars it was nominated for, including Best Picture, um, uh, and also went on to be the highest grossing film of 1961. Uh, this 2021 version is directed, of course, by Steven Spielberg, with screenplay by Tony Kushner, stars Ansel Elgort and Rachel Zegler as Tony and Maria, with Ariana DeBose, David Alvarez, Mike Face, and Mita Moreno uh, in supporting uh, roles. With Mita Moreno, of course, being uh, having won Best Supporting Actress in the 1961 version. Um, it premiered November 29th, 2021, here at the Lincoln Center in New York, uh, before releasing theatrically uh, December 10th, currently rated 4.0 on Letterboxd with 77,000 viewers, 93% critics, and 94% audience on Modern Tomatoes. Uh, as I mentioned, for Best Picture, it is currently ranked above Dune at number three, um, 
Steven Spielberg is currently fourth uh, up for fourth for best director. Ariana DeBose, uh, Soul Stealer, um, with supporting actress at number two. Mike Faced, uh, who plays uh, the Jets leader Riff, um, is currently just outside the top five at seventh for best supporting actor. It's currently fourth for best adapted screenplay, fourth for cinematography, fifth for costume design, fourth for film editing, fifth for makeup and hair, third for production design, and second for sound. So, you know, uh, when did you get a chance to see uh, West Side Story, Alex? I tried to see it as soon as it came out. So probably, I think it was on December 12th. Did you have, did you see like the original 1961 version at some point in the past? I have seen the original 1961 uh, film adaptation, and it is also one of my favorite musicals. So I had a lot to look forward to with this one. All right. So, so yeah, I, I had remember, you know, when I was younger growing up in Florida, I remember watching the original version uh, on VHS. Um, you know, the, so- the songs that stand out to me in my head, I think, are uh, the coming, like the America, of course, and Officer Krupke, I think, are the ones that definitely stand out for me. And, you know, I mean, my overall thoughts are that, you know, obviously the Spielberg version is good. I will say, um, overall, I think on the for, this is all comes down to taste, right? But my personal preference, and maybe this is nostalgia goggles a little bit on, I appreciate the updates, the choreography, um, and the cinematography that comes with the choreography for this new version. But I think for some re- for whatever reason, maybe it's nostalgia more than anything else. I'm I think a little bit more partial to the original. How do you feel between the two? I, I, I'm honestly split. I mean, it feels like sacrilege to say that the newer remake is better than the older version sometimes. Um, but I, I can see how definitely how the new one improves on some of the omissions from the original. And I, I think one of the ways the new film does that is that it manages to make the economic aspects of the story a little more salient. Uh, I feel like a lot of adaptations frame it primarily in terms of race. So bringing class into the mix adds another dimension that might otherwise be overlooked. Uh, one example of that is how it opens the scene. It opens the film with a scene of homes being demolished. Um, there's a clear gentrification message uh, being tri- uh, that the film tries to convey. So I think that the film tri- entreats the audience to entertain the possibility that the sharks and jets are in the same boat. Um, and it's, a, it's an appeal to unity, I think, in a classic Spielbergian fashion. Right. Yeah. I definitely. Yeah. It's. 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 The, it's. Funnily enough, like they're demolishing uh, houses for the Lincoln Center, um, where I think Premier and I believe the original actually had been filmed on, actually, um, in like a nice little tribute to that. Um, and yeah, you know, there was the scene where like the jets come in and then they, uh, you know, they. They, they take down, I think, a sign and it shows so, so that there was like, you know, an Irish pub where this new Mex- or this new like, you know, Hispanic Latinx, you know, uh, um, restaurant is now basically and kind of like sowing the classes between the two, basically, um, but how it kind of like affects them all to some degree. And, you know, it's very interesting, right? Like there was the scenes with the police. And I couldn't help but think about like, OK, how, how is this film tackling the idea of like, you know, the relation to the police with the community in like a post George Floyd era? Right. I think that was like an interesting perspective on there. Um you know, I think the film, to some degree, I think it's it's still constrained by the nature of the story in general. I mean, as as enjoyable of an of an experience it is to see West Side Story and the song and the dance and everything, there still is to some degree, right, some element of it being a story by 
white old white men about presumptuously you know Puerto Rican life in New York City. Um, and this update, while it definitely takes it definitely avoids some of the you know white like whitewashing and you know it, it has a lot more span like actual like Spanish in there with no subtitles um, and and a little bit more sensitivity around some of those things. Um, it still leans to some degree a lot into those same you know written by white folk white, white old white men uh tropes or something how do you feel about that 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 assertion well what's interesting about the original musical is that they were it was you know written and composed by uh, two jewish men and it seems to some reviewers that you know as jews they were transposing their own experience and stories that they may have heard about relatives immigrating from europe onto stories about Latinos immigrating from their own countries. And the tension emerges when those experiences do not necessarily line up with each other. So there's still an authentic immigrant experience, I think, being invoked in the story. But I think, nevertheless, actually, I don't know. I have to think about that. Yeah, for sure. No, not not with you on the spot, but yeah, I mean, you know, I think, I think, you know, some things in the in the screenplay, I appreciate, you know, what Spielberg and Tony Kushner did to try to update it, right? Like they tried to add more, say, nuance to Tony's character, right? Like, you know, um, Ansel Elgort's character, you know, he almost killed a kid or whatever, and now he's like facing this, you know, this, this, this kind of backstory and so on. Um, you know, they add a little bit more character to Chino, right? And kind of like his relationship um, with, with them and so on. And, you know, I think they do, a, they try to do a little bit more to update um, the character of Anybody's, um, who in the original one was just called a tomboy. But here, I think they they basically kind of like more explicitly state that he, he's a trans character. Um, so, you know, I think that's a little bit more of an update. That And like you said, there's some stuff about like the gentrification element of it and the economic element. But at the same time, I feel like they touch on these and they hint at it a little bit more but again i think constrained by just the limits of the original screenplay to some degree um they can't really go too far from that and and dive into all of the uh, all of the social issues that this 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 the questions that the screenplay raises and they can't really answer all of them when it has this you know romeo and juliet love story to to take to talk about right i I think that is what makes the new version successful? It, it's the the story is in a sense universal, but then I think there's a dilemma that arises when you try to create a universal story, but then you get lot do you lose sight of the specifics of the community that you're actually trying to portray? Um, and I think Spielberg tried to circumvent that to some degree. He did have you know Rita Moreno as one of the executive producers so it's not like he didn't get any input on what would be a sensitive portrayal um, of this community of but I think it's always a question that any director would have to confront right. if they were tried to do this story yeah I mean I would say it's kind of funny I was mentioning earlier in the year um, when In the Heights came out, right? It came out over the summer, also in HBO Max. Unfortunately, it was not a financial success, though it seems like West Side Story has also been struggling at the box office. Maybe people just aren't in the mood for musicals this year. Uh, but yeah, that's like, a, what in, in the Heights was another film about a pre- predominantly Latino community in New York City facing the problems of gentrification with a little bit of like a Romeo and Juliet love story thrown in there to some degree, right? Um, obviously, the focuses are a little bit different. And, you know, obviously, In the Heights being my Manuel has a little bit more specificity uh, when it comes to kind of like the economic issues and, and less so on the romance there. Um, and I don't know, personally, I liked In the Heights a little bit more to some degree. Um, I, I acknowledge that there were definitely a lot of flaws within the Heights in terms of the, the plot and the pacing and so on, which I think 
West Side Story is a little bit better at. Um, but I think, again, I think that all comes down to personal taste to some degree. <laughs> yeah, as a, actually for West Side Story, I think it might actually be one of, uh, might be my favorite of the four films we're discussing today. And if it weren't for Power of the Dog, I would have assumed that West Side Story was the de facto Best Picture winner. Um, so even though audiences in general are not flocking to musicals this year, I do know that the Academy has an affinity for musicals when you consider the success of La La Land at the Oscars uh, a couple years ago, or the fact that it's uh, as recently, yeah, it is Spielberg. Um, Spielberg actually is on record as, as having wanted to direct a musical since at least The Temple of Doom. Uh, the opening musical number of that film, I think, is evidence of that aspiration. So ever since West Side Story was announced, I'd been looking forward to it. Um, and his, he has a very musical uh, directing style with the fluid camera movements. Ultimately, it was, the execution was very technically stunning for me. And I think that's what won me over in the end. Okay. Um, and then, you know, obviously, let's, let's like go, going through all the different categories, right? Like, obviously, Spielberg being Spielberg is, is pretty, uh, has a pretty solid chance of getting nominated. As we mentioned, this Academy loves Spielberg. Um, what about Ariana DeBose as um, as Anita, right? Like, obviously, that's the same role that Rita Moreno won her Oscar for. Um, and currently, Ariana, Ariana DeBose is, is number two, though I think for me, she would be like the clear front runner for me personally in terms of uh, who should win Best Supporting Actress. What do you think about her role here? I agree. I agree. I think it's a lock, basically. Yeah, I mean, just her character, again, same as the original one with Rita Moreno, just goes the whole breadth of human emotion, basically, and just like has such, it steals the scene in every in, in every shot season, basically. Um, and then, you know, Mike Face, outside the top five, you know, but he plays Rift, you know, the leader of the Jets, um, which, you know, kind of speaking about the Jets, Ansel Elgort, in my opinion, was really miscast here i don't know just him uh, being a non-broadway person up against broadway people is just uh definitely not not a winning combination for your supposed leading man and i don't know maybe this is just me but i think he has a little bit too much of a baby face and you know and then and then just singing wise he just felt like he was lacking some sort of vibrato for me when he was singing i don't know what do you think about ansel elgort here yeah i I think that was one of the main flaws i felt with the film i don't think elgort had that much of a presence compared to especially compared to a lot of the other actors who are uh, performing alongside him yeah and then you know cinematography right like like i had alluded to before i think the cinematography did a lot here to um really elevate the updates to the choreography this time around um i believe the core i forget who the choreographer this this uh for this for this one was but you know i read someone that they kind of updated where the original one right like they didn't have the same technology for for cinematography back in the day so you know they were mostly like set you know set 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 cameras as if you were looking at the broadway play and the choreography kind of reflected that almost like in a ballet type choreography here with a lot you know, the spielbergian dynamic camera they're able to be a lot more athletic when it comes to the choreography and you know i think to some degree capture especially in like in the america sequence um you know the cameras moving through the neighborhoods and kind of sewing this lived in community um of people who are there and they kind of dancing throughout the the scenes um so i think definitely i appreciate the the the, the cinematography there there though you know i feel like the the oscar the academy just has like a a, a thing for black and white choreography uh, which i think will help other films over this one to some degree yeah i think the cinematography of west high story i think was what i think really truly elevated the film for me it's so dynamic and so of uh, immersive and of uh, rhythmic and i think it captured both 
the choreography and the locations in such rich detail. I don't even know how to describe it. There's some even there's even some impossible shots where, for instance, when they're going up to the gym for the dance, we have a backwards tracking shot where we're following them through the hallway, and then as they enter, the camera gradually lifts into a crane shot. Of the entire yeah, I, noticed, I remember that shot. And yeah, it's like, how do they pull it off? Do they like just transfer the camera to a crane or something like that? Like, how do they do that? Right. It's mind boggling what they do. And I'm still wondering how they accomplish some of those shots. Yeah. So I, I will say there's no real other place to talk about it. But, you know, choreography wise, I mean, I guess like for for Broadway, the musical, you kind of have to just like uh give in to the suspension of disbelief that like, yeah, they're going to dance at each, as, at each other as a form of like combat and fighting. But it's still kind of funny to think about like, we're going to be the, hey, yo, we're these real tough guys. We're going to like beat you up. And then they break into like a plie or something to like try to be aggressive. It's like, <laughs> uh, not quite what you're going for there, buddy. I, I think that's a complaint I've heard some of my friends make, even about the original version. And, I, you know, as someone who like grew up watching like musicals, I think that, I think it was ultimately a little easier for me to suspend my disbelief. I can understand why that might not be the case for a lot of people. So I think it's just a matter of taste when it comes to that. I think the choreography uh, updates the choreography um, insofar as the differences between the old version and the new version are concerned. I think that it is integrated quite well. Um, with the surrounding oh, yeah. I, I, choices. I think like if you're able to suspend the disbelief that like, you know, in a musical in general, people are just going to break into song, they're stare their emotions, right? Like that's something that like, okay, fine, we'll go with that. Guys fighting with ballet moves are like, okay, sir, whatever. I can I can buy into that. It's just I think maybe it, it's a little bit more viable when it's like a static camera and it looks like they're on stage as opposed to like this more lived in world where it's like a lot more realistic to some degree. That people breaking like trying to be aggressive with these ballet moves are like uh, a little bit less suspense of disbelief. A little bit more suspense of disbelief is required there. But you know, again, I I can deal with it for a little bit. That's really interesting. It, it seems sounds like you're saying that because all the other aspects are more realistic, it makes the more musical aspects seem even more artificial. Is that what you're trying to get at? I think to some degree. I think that's what I'm saying. And maybe maybe that's my take. I don't know if it's like a good take or a bad take, but that's just kind of like my my impression of that. I think. Um, and then you know, obviously there are all the other ones, which you know, it's kind of like hanging around at the bottom of you know, say like costume design number five, help film editing number four, makeup and hair five, production design three. Um, so you know. Obviously, they crafted this world and, 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 and did a lot of technical stuff. But I think this kind of transitions to an interesting question. I want to compare West Side Story and, and Dune, uh, if that's okay with you. Like, obviously, Dune is kind of the front runner of all of these. So, you know, where, like, what are the importance, do you think, of these technical categories when it comes to a film's potential for best picture, right? Like, you know, there are some films that are like, oh, they'll get maybe one or two technical nominations, right? I think like The Lighthouse uh, a couple of years back for cinematography, right? Right? But it had no best picture consideration, right? Both of these films have a lot of technical consideration going on here, a lot of technical support. So what do you think like this technical support means? Kind of like these, you know, so-called below the line uh awards, um, as opposed to like the major ones like actor, actress, screenplay, and director mean for a film's chances at best picture. If I look at the Academy's track record in the last two decades, I don't see that much of a correlation between some of the technical categories and the more prestigious categories like picture or, or director or even writing. I think that that may have been the case probably uh, in previous decades. I think Titanic is a good example of that. Lord of the Rings also. Lord of the Rings is another good example. Um, but 
besides those, a lot of the technical awards are being given to films that are a lot less um, uh, critically acclaimed, um, like, like the Harry Potter films or um, even some superhero films. I don't think that a film's success in the technical categories will necessarily position it better for a Best Picture win. But I do feel like in terms of competition, West Side Story and Dune are definitely films to compare to one another. Um, yeah, I guess like one last question on West Side Story. You know, I already mentioned I think my favorite segment from this one, uh, actually both films, I really love their America uh, segments. Though I will say like the gym sequence, I think in this one was a lot stronger as opposed to the like the dance the dance choreography sequences. Um, I think Officer Krupke, I like a lot more in the original than, than here. But about, what about you? What are your favorite numbers from West Side Story overall? I, I have to agree with your first choice. I, I love the scene from America. Um, I had to, I, right after I saw the film, I went online to see if there was a clip of it, like a promotional clip online, and there wasn't. But I, I really wanted to return to that uh, vibrancy that I think that scene instilled. And I, it was very important for my interpretation of the film because I think we really get to see uh, a wider uh, view of the neighborhood that emphasis on location um and juxtaposing that with the choreography and and the blocking and the camera angles i think is what made that film stand out the most to me from other from other areas a lot of the other sequences i think were interiors um and that's and i think they're all all brilliantly choreographed and shot these exteriors from the america sequence really added a vibrancy to the film um, for me. All right, cool. So the next one actually just came out on streaming as of this past Friday, um, Tragedy of Macbeth. Um, so this one is an adaptation of the classic William Shakespeare, The Scottish Play, um, directed by Joel Cohen of the Cohen Brothers in their first solo film, actually. It stars Denzel Washington as the Red King and Francis McDormand as his wife, premiered at the 2021 New York Film Festival before A24, had a limited theatrical release December 25th, and it released, as I mentioned, Apple TV Plus this past Friday, January 14th. Leatherbox score has it at a 3.9 with 20,000 viewers, and Rotten Tomatoes critics gave it a 93%, while audience gave it a slightly lower 83%. Currently, it is just at the number 10 spot for Best Picture. Denzel Washington is currently number 4 for Best Actor. Cinematography is at number 3. Uh, best Production Design, number 5. And it's shortlisted for score. Um, so, you know, obviously not quite as much uh recognition as you know west side story and dune but still you know getting a getting sneaking into the best picture i remember hearing when it premiered at uh new york the new york film festival here um a lot of buzz about it um so yeah what are your thoughts about the scottish play uh alex sure so i had just seen it yesterday uh january 15th on apple tv plus i really wanted to see it in theaters um unfortunately didn't get a chance to uh now that i've seen it I think it's probably my second favorite of these four films. Right? I, I think watching it made me realize that people's preconception of what Shakespearean dialogue sounds like comes from bad Shakespeare reading. But while I was watching McDormand's and Washington's, um, Denzel Washington's performances, I didn't feel the dialogue inaccessible at all. It, it makes very clear the rising stakes of killing Duncan and Banquo and Macduff. And it also makes very clear Macbeth's increasingly conflicted conscience over the morality of his actions. And I think that's really helped by 
I think the simplicity of the execution, the the blocking, the editing, and cinematography are all very precise and elegant. I, I think it eliminates anything that's superfluous to the narrative beyond essential details. Uh, music's mostly absent. And even the narrow aspect ratio focuses our attention to the performances. Yeah, I had mentioned like The Lighthouse, you know, from a couple years back. Similarly, right, both black and white films, both beautifully shot, right? And, you know, um, you know, I think this one should, should get a light a black, again, maybe it's, uh, my preference for black and white cinematography to some degree, but, uh, you know, Tragedy of Macbeth uh, and Lighthouse, I think both did amazing things with like that, that, that limited aspect ratio for sure. As far as like the Shakespeare dialogue, I know some people have complained about not understanding it, maybe the sound, the sound and the way that, and the speed that they were talking, they couldn't understand the words quite as as well. And and you no, know, having subtitles on when I watched, I admit, I admittedly had subtitles on when I watched just to make so I could understand what was being said. But you know, having I, I remember reading Macbeth in high school, and so I kind of had familiarity and it kind of jogged my memories of like, oh, what was actually going on. And I'll agree, this was actually like a really solid portrayal emotionally i think of what was going on um it kind of also made kind of made me laugh when i remember like oh yeah the play of macbeth is basically uh macbeth being a wimp when it comes to wanting to do a thing and his wife being telling him like hey man up and do this thing basically um yeah. to some degree <laughs> um which i don't know maybe i had like a little bit of a farcical take on on some shakespeare plays and yeah there is there is some there is to some degree like you know some things lost in the in the dialogue for modern day where you know Shakespeare makes allusions and uses words in a way that reference make a reference to something at the at Elizabethan times would have meant one thing and maybe that meaning has been lost but still the core emotion of like what's going on I think comes through um and yeah Denzel what, what do you think about specifically Denzel Washington's performance uh for best actor I was very impressed I I think that he manages to instill some of the nuances of his internal conflict without making it overly hammed up. And I, I think that was, I think that was what made his performance work really well for me. And I think he has also great chemistry with McDormand as well. You know, I will say, I think, uh, what, what, who, who is it again? Um, I will say, I think that uh, Catherine Hunter, who plays the witch, probably was my favorite performance. She's not anywhere near being nominated for uh, Best Supporting Actress, unfortunately, but I really loved her portrayal as the witch. I think she really gives like that creepy supernatural element to the to the play that I think um, a lot of people often overlook. I think when they think about what Macbeth is. Yeah, I mean, I I think that the whole cast and not not just Denzel did a fantastic job, um, and. Like I said earlier, I think that the performances were actually amplified by some aspects of the production design, which I just found absolutely stunning. All, everything working in concert together. Yeah, like the, the set the set being like super minimalist as opposed to like a really luxurious, you know, like castle and so on, right? Like it's very stark black and kind of works well with the black and white uh, cinematography, like they're very minimalist uh, production sets. Mm -hmm. So you, I think on one hand, we've got this very naturalistic performances from the cast um, and this very stylized um, you know, visual designs um, on, on the other hand. So I think there's this really wonderful contrast that's being created by the, the juxtaposition of those two, in my opinion. Yeah, I will say that also leads to some really, I, it's a shame this one's not higher up for editing. Um, I don't know where you would put it, actually, but there were some transition shots here that just like really took me away. Um, I think there was one shot where like it looks up to the moon 
and then like the moon is like a circle in the sky and then it transitions to essentially a spotlight that comes back around and looks at Banquo as he's like musing over himself over some things right um, yeah and then there was I a, loved it there were a ton of other transitions especially in the first half that really caught my attention um, and just the use of like the mist and like the fog as people like come in and out and adding like this otherworldly quality to it um, I think really made this really an enjoyable film for you know especially if you could if you could get around and, and start understanding what was going on um like dialogue wise i think this was like uh you know definitely an enjoyable i definitely do hope this one makes it into the final 10 uh for best picture yeah for sure i think some of the transitions you mentioned also managed to instill a sense of unease um that something is not quite right um especially with with the transitions with the fog um and i think that showed some a mastery over tone uh, that the film demonstrates. Right. So I'm not f- super familiar with all of the the Coen Brothers works. Um, so, but I, I, I'm, I would would you say you, you've seen a, a fair bit of their works? I, I have seen a few. I've I've seen uh, of course No Country for Old Men, Oh Brother Where Art Thou. Um, I have not seen Fargo, and everyone's been telling me to watch it. Um, and given that I like the previous work, I think that's something I'll also look forward to. All right. So, how do you feel about this one? As obviously, again, this is a solo work of Joel Cohen, um, as opposed to the brothers working together. How do you feel this one stacks up against the ones that you have seen in terms of directing? Style? Like, what like what stands out as like a difference to, to pay attention to, perhaps? I, I think it is. It's hard to compare it because it is very different. Um, I mean, a lot of their previous work I relied on allusions to film noir, um, which Macbeth does to a certain extent with the slightly German expressionist uh, cinematography. But then again, it's a lot more, um, like I said earlier, very austere. And I don't think I don't think it would be appropriate to describe their uh, Joel's work with his brother as austere, um, even though they are also very uh, focused. Um, and they are nevertheless, I think, ultimately, um, his work with his brother is ultimately very uh, stylized in a way that isn't as uh, simple or elegant as Macbeth is. Um, and I think that's what stands out the most to me about it. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Um, speaking of more, we'll, we'll then turn to our final film, um, if that's okay with you. Um, we'll do, turn to Nightmare Alley. Again, a film I have not seen myself, unfortunately. Um, hopefully, we're able to get to in the next couple of weeks in theaters. Uh, hopefully, I can catch this in theaters before it goes away entirely. Uh, but Nightmare Alley is a neo-noir psychological thriller adapting the 1946 novel of the same name by Lindsay Gurr. Gersham, uh, William Lindsay Gersham. It's the second such adaptation after a 1947 film. This one's directed by Guillermo del Toro, stars Bradley Cooper as Stan Carlisle, an ambitious carny who gets involved with corrupt psychiatrist Dr. Lilith Ritter, played by Kate Blanchett. Uh, it premiered at the Lincoln Center December 1st, 2021, before releasing wide by Searchlight Pictures December 17th. Um, I actually don't have the letterbox scores uh, written up here, um, but it is currently number 11 for Best Picture, uh, number 7 for Best Director, Director Guillermo del Toro, number 7 for Adapted Screenplay, number 6 for Cinematography, number 6 for Costume, number 7 for Editing, and number 2 for Best Production, as well as shortlisted for Makeup and Hair. So the only nomination it's likely going to get at this point seems to be Best Production, um, unless it's able to sneak into Best Picture somewhere. Um, And this one has fallen down the charts quite a bit from when it first you know the for people first heard about it but to some degree i think the poor box office of this one might have hurt it a little bit which again we'll talk about later um so again alex i haven't seen nightmare alley why don't you try to go ahead and try to sell me on it 
the only other Guillermo del Toro film I had seen was Pan's Labyrinth, and I hadn't seen any of his other films. But what attracted me to Nightmare Alley um, was actually the fact that he doesn't include any monsters or supernatural events in this film. Uh, I, I did know that a lot of his previous ones had at least one of those elements. So the fact that he is trying to take on something that was more akin to a thriller rather than outright horror was something that was really intriguing to me. Um, and so from what I understand, for the most part, uh, this uh, adaptation, this is an adaptation of um, the a novel from the 40s, right? Yeah. And it was eventually also turned into a film. And I, from what I understand, it's mostly faithful to that. But I think what Guillermo tries to do with this film is to almost make it like a horror film in the style of his previous movies. So he always teases at the possibility that Stan's abilities might be real. There are moments in the film where I think the audience is trying to uh, understand, oh, how does he know that? Um, and ultimately, after each scene, it's revealed that he has some elaborate way of being able to uh, deduce the other person's uh, backstory or what their mental states are um, as he's working as a mentalist. And to me, that kind of teasing at the possibility that there might indeed be supernatural forces at work, rather than focusing on the more humanistic drama of the fact that he is deceiving people, to me, that betrays a lack of confidence in the story because the story is still compelling, even if we knew for certain that Stan's mind reading abilities are false. So why tease us with the possibility that they are real if that's beside the point? Um, I think that as a result, the film kind of feels like it's trying to have its cake, uh, have its cake and eat it too. Um, and I think that's what made me disappointed with it in the end. Okay. Um, you know, apparently in LA, they are uh, showing black and white versions of this, which, you know, being a neo-noir film, hearkening back to the black and white noir film airs, uh, I feel like it probably good marketing, but, you know, what, what do you think about the cinematography? Um, it seems like from what I've seen in the trailers and whatnot, it seems like pretty dark um, and, and gritty um, you know, is the best way to describe it. How would you describe the cinematography here? And do you think being in black and white would help it, do you think? One of its strongest elements is the cinematography. Uh, it And I can see why a black and white version would be released because so much of the lighting is very um, high contrast and it sculpts the subjects in the frame in a way that makes me think of, of classical Hollywood cinema. Um, and I think that stylized approach to the story, I, I found it just very beautiful to look at. <laughs> Oh no 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 that 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 answered that um, and then you know one other question so obviously like again the only Oscar it's probably going to get nominated for this point is best production which is you know my understanding production is used like the sets and the props and so on um, where do you think this one stands I think it's only below Dune I believe for for best production um, so w how do you feel like the sets and, and the props and and all the other things that go into production uh, worked out for for Nightmare Alley here so for the production design I think that it was very detailed but also slightly heightened i think you can tell that he's trying to go for a only semi-realistic depiction of reality but at the same time there's a almost fable-like or fantasy quality that's draped over everything around it uh and i i think compared to dune 
I think this production design is a lot more impressive in my in my view. Uh, in Dune, you have a lot of um, it's a lot. Do you have a lot more empty rooms, empty spaces? It doesn't quite feel as lived in the way Nightmare Alley or even West Side Story does. Um, and I think, especially being a period film, that would position Nightmare Alley uh, to be a very strong contender for best production design. All right, then. Uh, I won't talk too much more about Nightmare Alley. Again, I don't have too much to contribute here. And, you know, it is getting probably the least Oscar buzz of these four films. But was there anything else about it you wanted to mention? No, that's it. I don't have too much to say about it either. So that's it for me for this one. All right. Sounds good. So, you know, just kind of, kind of like, I guess, wrap up this whole conversation then. Um, you know, we've kind of alluded to that the, the Academy hasn't really favored genre films too well obviously you know like we mentioned uh horror films tend not to do super well at the oscar science fiction even you know if you want to consider uh superhero films as genre films haven't done too well historically as well um i think the only real instances being joker which you know is hardly a, a super a comic book film in in its feel and then black panther which was like a kind of a special year um i know kevin feige you know had been kind of trying to push that eternals uh to, to get some oscar buzz this year um which unfortunately is doesn't like it's going to be happening um but one thing i wanted to and we've kind of alluded to this before is that you know box office i think and, and here's an assertion i've had box office doesn't necessarily impact whether a film will get nominated if it's a kind of film that is not meant to be a wide general audience type film right something like power of the dog if it wasn't a netflix exclusive i don't think would break records at the box office right However, films that are supposed to be more populist, so to speak, um, have like a bigger appeal uh, more broadly. If it disappoints at the box office, I think ends up not doing quite as well. So, you know, example here, Nightmare Alley released opposite Spider-Man No Way Home, which not the best decision, I think, from Searchlight, um, as it's kind of been a flaw financially. Um, West Side Story hasn't been doing super well, which, you know, um, still I think the Spielberg name is enough to carry it on. But, um, you know, another comparison will be In the Heights, which had some early Oscar buzz way back in the summer before it kind of flopped financially. Um, Dune, you know, on the other hand, on the flip side, you know, Villeneuve's other film, uh, Blade Runner 2049, uh, flopped financially just because it was so expensive um, to the point where, you know, he wanted to film parts one and parts two back to back, but uh, Legendary wouldn't let him. They had to film one first and prove himself with part one before we could get part two uh, greenlit. But that one obviously did amazingly. And now, you know, compared to 2049, it's doing amazingly uh, at the Oscars consideration. So, you know, what what would you say about, you know, the relationship, if any, that you perceive of box office success, um, at least for genre films more so than, you know, uh, adult drama type films? What do you think box office plays into these uh, genre films and having to prove themselves um, for the Oscars? Right. I, I think given the recent pandemic, we might also have to rethink what our notion of box office success would be, right? So, for instance, in the case of West Side Story, that was um, one of the highest grossing films the, the weekend it was released. Um, and But at the same time, it was a lot lower than what people expected. So then how do you evaluate, then how does one evaluate whether that was a success or not, given the fact that it was the highest grossing film that weekend? I definitely believe that dramas don't have to prove themselves by the box office as much as genre films do. So if a genre film doesn't perform well, then chances are they're not going to receive the kind of critical attention that they would otherwise receive. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, any other thoughts on these films or any other films, uh, you know, for for up for the Oscars this year that you want to shout out? Um, so actually, I wanted to kind of recapitulate some of the aspects that made 
these four films particularly exceptional. Um, this is a very strong genre lineup, and it's probably among the uh, strongest genre lineups that we're going to get for a while. Um, and there, there are several things to note about it that make all of them exceptional in some way or another. The fact that, first of all, all of them are adaptations or remakes. Um, Dune being, you know, having David Lynch's version and being based on Frank Herbert's novel. West Side Story, you have the 9621 Robert Wise musical, um, itself an adaptation of the stage musical, which itself is an adaptation of Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> um, Nightmare Alley, you've got the, 19, the 1947 film by Edmund Goulding and the novel by William Lindsay Gresham. Macbeth, having previously been adapted multiple times. Since um, the 1600s, it's been adapted. Right. Um, some notable versions being Orson Welles, 1948, Rowan Polanski in 1971, and then there's the recent version with Justin Curzel uh, in 2015, among others. Um, and uh, all of them are experiments in genre. Joel Cohen, the first project he directs without involvement of his brother, Ethan Cohen. Spielberg, his first venture into the musical format, surprisingly. Guillermo del Toro, his first film noir. Villeneuve, you got his, he, this is his third venture into science fiction, with the other two being Arrival, Blade Runner 2049, prior to which he directed many thrillers. Three of these filmmakers have won Best Picture before. So Joel Cohen, so you got No Country for Old Men in 2007, which he directed with Ethan. Spielberg, you've got Schindler's List from 1993. Del Toro, you've got Shape of Water from 2017. And Arrival, which was directed by Villeneuve, was nominated in 2016, but it didn't win. My opinion is that in, in, in if there were this were any other year um, without Power of the Dog, I think West Side Story normally would be a clear contender to win Best Picture. Um, it, it flatters the what I perceive to be the relatively nostalgic sensibilities of the Academy, and it also plays lip service to social issues. And it's also you know awarding the musical would be a very fitting way to commemorate the legacy of a recently deceased celebrated artist, the lyricist uh, Stephen Sondheim. Um, so, but. Uh, this isn't any other year, and we do have um, also a very strong contender of non-genre films. So I'll be very interesting to see how that plays out once the Academy Awards rolls around. Awesome. And then is there anything, uh, you know, not Oscar-related that uh, you'd like to recommend folks check out? I might have mentioned this earlier. So The Souvenir Part 2 is one of my favorite films this year, probably my top film this year, which premiered at Cannes. I highly checking out both Part 1 and Part 2. Um, just a very uh, subtle and, uh, I think, delicate coming-of-age story, which is also semi-autobiographical based on director Joanna Hogg's uh, young adulthood in London. So definitely check that out. I think, I'm trying to think of what other great films I've seen uh, last year. Oh, um, Memoria, uh, which from what I understand is currently touring the country with uh, weekly well, a screening in a different city uh, for a short amount of time. Uh, and if it does come to you at some point, you should definitely check it out in a theater. Okay. Um, and any films coming up in 2022 that you're looking forward to um, for either for the Oscars or just in general that you want to see, um, you know, coming out this year? Oh, Mission Impossible 7. <laughs> <laughs> Very different than the other films we've been talking about. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's like been delayed like three or four times. I've lost count. But I think this is the one where he like derails an actual train. I can't wait to see it. It's, I'm going to see it in IMAX as soon as it's released. I 
impossibly excited. Quite the contrast from everything else we've been talking about. You're like talking about like, you know, soft, sensitive souvenir part two and then missing impossible seven. <laughs> I guess, I guess you can appreciate, you can appreciate all types of film. That I, I think that's accurate. I, I am a person of many tastes and, the souvenir and Mission Impossible are just two ends of that. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, is there anything you want to plug? You know, obviously you have your work uh, with the Cinema Club. Um, any social media? You know, you obviously mentioned you have a letterbox. Anything you want to plug, uh, or, or where people can get a hold of you online if they want to talk more film? My letterbox handle is a Atienza, so my first initial followed by my last name, uh, and my Instagram is a p Atienza, where you can find some of my graphic design and photography work. The, company that I work for, Le Cinema Club, is www.lecinemaclub.com. Okay, and what, what, do they ha- what do they have on Doc uh, for this week? So for this week, they currently have Sundog by Dorian Jespers, this up-and-coming uh, Belgian filmmaker who recently showed this short at New Directors New Films uh, last year. Uh, check it out. Okay, and then is it just like you know, like it's like a subscription service, or how does it work for for listening to Maclava? It's an online uh, streaming platform where you can just go to the website and you'll find the short film streaming right there, and you don't have to subs- you don't have to give contact info or payment info or anything. You can just play the film on there for free. Awesome. That is uh, super great for people who want to discover new sorts of films. So um, yeah, thanks so much again, Alex. It was great to catch up um, for, and you know, it's been a while and you know, definitely loved being able to pick your head, uh, pick your brain about, you know, all these different films and, you know, hopefully we can do this again in the future sometime. For sure. I'd love to chat with you about film at any time. All right. Uh, thanks, Alex. Thank you so much, Pablo. Thanks again to Alex for coming on this podcast. I super appreciate him making the time to do so. Again, if you want to check out his Loaded Box or Le Cinema Club, links to both of those will be in the show notes. Now, for our last episode of this pre-nominations Best Picture Likely Review series of episodes, uh, we'll be looking at the last four films of the top 12 according to the Gold Derby that all seem to be have some sort of coming-of-age story. We have Belfast, Liquid Pizza, King Richard, and Coda. Um, I believe all but Liquid Pizza should be available in some form or another online. Uh, Belfast and King Richard should be on VOD, and Coda is on Apple TV+, Plus. which if you got it for Tragedy of Macbeth like I did, you should be good. Uh, Liquid Pizza is not yet out digitally, um, which means there's a good chance I don't I don't see by next week. Luckily, I'll have some backup with our guests next week. Um, Jeff and Pierre from the Classic Movie Lives podcast, among others, uh, will be joining us to talk about these four films. Um, also, be sure to check one of their other podcasts in the same feed, Kicking It with Kendrick, um, where they go through all of Anna Kendrick's filmography. I was a guest recently, uh, might be coming out this episode this week, I think, um, to talk about the 2016 film The Accountant um, and put on my hat as host of the Box Office Watch podcast. To provide a little bit box office 101 for them. Uh, but definitely looking forward to having them on next week and talking about those four films. 
In the meantime, though, that wraps up this episode of the Oscars Death Race podcast. Let me know how your Death Race is going over on Twitter at OscarsDRaceCast or via email at OscarsDeathRacePodcast at gmail.com. Make sure to subscribe to the show on your podcast service of choice, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and you can leave us a review there on Podchase or even just share it with a friend who loves movies. Any of that's super helpful. If you want to directly financially contribute to the show, you can do so over on Patreon, linked in the show notes. Also, link will be my Leatherbox account under the username NinjaBoy, boy with an I. Be sure to join connect with the community on the Oscar Race and the Oscars Death Race subreddits and the Academy of Death Racers Discord, as well as the community websites uh, AODR.net for the Academy of Death Racers and the leaderboard site OscarsDeathRace.com. Uh, in addition, uh, Slide Asso, who you remember from last season, has his seats updated as well. You can find those in the Discord. Uh, music for the episode is provided by Kevin MacLeod. His stuff is at incompetech.filmmusic.io. Editing production by Ninja Boy Media. That's it for this week. This has been Paul of the Oscars Death Race Podcast. Until next time, I'll be here trying to watch all the Oscar nominees or die trying.